Our scripture for today is John 19, verse 31 through 42. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you, may also, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will not look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. It is, it's, it's good to be together. Uh, I'm grateful for this, this coming week, and Cody, Cody said it really well, but I would, I would just really encourage each of us to really, like, I'm grateful we're all here. It's not, this isn't a bait and switch, but it's, it's wonderful we're here this week, and every time we gather, we're really expecting the Lord to transform us. None of us are wanting to play church. We really want our encounter together with him to be something that we can't just walk away and be the same, to be transformed every time we come together. And there is a special transforming that most people would say uh, happens Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I think in some ways it's just the Holy Spirit and the Father honoring the Son in doing special transformative work in people around that time. And, and my, my family's story is no different. Um, I came to Jesus in 1997 at the University of Northern Iowa, gave my life to him, and my parents were, were not Christians and for a couple of years, prayed for them. And then it was an Easter Sunday that, that I remember just inviting my parents to go to Sailorville Church in, in the Des Moines area. And, um, and my mom gave her life to Jesus right around that time in her 40s, you know, and just having an Easter invitation. And the Lord took it from there. And, uh, and, and then my dad came to Jesus shortly afterwards and everything. And so, so I, I would just encourage you that... You might say, well, God uses other people like that, but he wouldn't use me because he doesn't know what I've done or he knows what I've done. And just all that is garbage. Um, he knows what we've done and he knows what we haven't done that we should have done. And he still did what he did and beckons us to, to follow him. And so, so it's easy and it's easy even in my own heart to view church as like a restaurant. Somewhere I go get fed, you know, I, at a restaurant, I'm not anticipating, like, getting to know people around me. I'm, I'm actually looking to people to serve me at a restaurant, 
And uh, I may leave a tip if I have an exceptionally good service, you know, uh, experience or whatever, but it's all going to be about kind of like me getting what I want and leaving. And I think like it's, it's so easy in 21st century American Christianity to view church as a restaurant um, and uh, an embassy of heaven is actually more accurate biblically to think of a church or a hospital where we're all patients and, in some ways, doctors. Uh, For those of us who have met Jesus, where we both need him and have found him and can help other people meet him. And we had a really radical story of that happening last Sunday where someone um, came unexpectedly and unexpectedly had their life forever changed. And um, uh, Or a family gathering is another very biblical way to think of our church gathering. And they're, they're more biblical, but... On Good Friday and on Easter, we are keenly aware of how much we have been served. Like, if we go through Good Friday and Easter and that doesn't become an overwhelming, humbling thought, how much we've been served undeservedly, we should be serving him and he's serving us, um, that it is an incredible time to ask Tanner, to ask Christy, to ask Madison. If you don't know who those people are, you can ask me and just be like, what can I do to help this week? What can I do to, to serve? Um, and, and, and even then, people who are new to the church, who are walking in, who typically don't come, um, and we'll have plenty of room. We can pull out these bleachers, and, and they're motorized, so just in, in a minute, we can have all the bleachers out if we need to. So we'll have plenty of space in here, and, and I would just encourage you to just go for it. Just go for it. Uh, maybe take the risk. Step out. And don't say, like, hey, here's an invite to church, but say, hey, can I, BJ does this really well, can I come and pick you up? I'll be there at, at 9.30 or 9.45. Uh, I'm going to pick you up, and can we go to church together? And what I would encourage you to is even if you're like, man, I have family traditions that go back six generations of what we did on Easter. And what I would say is, like, how beautiful to have new traditions centered around Jesus that can start being formed this week. And many families can attest to that. It's like, yeah, we did that forever, and we kind of still do that. We've modified it a little bit, but now all 30 of those people come to church. <laughs> and then we do the, the meal that we usually do or whatever it would be. So, um, And this is not my, like, I'm not trying to just get people in the door, but we will be proclaiming Jesus. We'll be doing it imperfectly, but when people see him, perfect Savior, through our imperfect communication, it is life-changing. And we will be lifting him high uh, over the next, uh, the next several days. And, and I would love for all of us to be locking arms in that. And last week, so we're, we're wrapping up preaching through the book of John. We started the first week of January preaching the book of John, 2021. <laughs> So not this last January, but the January before. So we're, we're going verse by verse almost. Um, and uh, we're, we're coming to the end of the book of, the, of John. Last week, we focused on the crucifixion. And we're going to look at the crucifixion through a different lens on Friday. But today, what we're looking at is just things that immediately were happening towards the end of the crucifixion. And we're at verse 31. Verse 31 um, says um, of John 19, since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, exceptionally special Sunday or Saturday for them, that Sabbath was a high day 
the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. So let's pause there right now. So this is happening close to an important Sabbath day. Now, just to give context and to remember, the rest of God, this concept of rest, the rest of God has been something since creation that we, has been a reality since creation. God worked for six days during creation, creating the world, and on the seventh day, he rested. He did not rest because he was tired. We're talking about the one who has infinite energy and infinite strength. He rested because rest is good. He then directed his people that they should work for six days. We've kind of modified it five days. But, but he then directed his people that they should work for six days and rest on the seventh day. They don't rest because all the work is finished. The work is never finished. And if you live on like property in Iowa, you know, or even if you just live in Iowa in general, you know the work is never finished. There's always a to-do list. I think that's true everywhere, but I feel it eminently at our place. It's like, man, I, if you wait for me to rest until my to-do list is, is done and there's no other thing to add to the list, I would never ever rest. So we don't rest because the work is, is, is finished, because the work is never finished. The Sabbath rest is actually a way to trust God with a full to-do list. The Sabbath is a way to trust God with a full to-do list. Even with work unfinished, we stop, we rest, we trust him, and we keep that day holy. And this has been, since creation, a reality. So the crucifixion, so for basically the, the short of it is the Sabbath was moved to Sunday because of the resurrection um, of Jesus. And so, so, but the Sabbath before that, which is probably a good, re if you're going to move a date, like that would be the reason. <laughs> that would be, it's like, well, what else it would be better uh, to celebrate in, uh, in the existence of earth than that day. And so, so Sunday became that day. But for the Jewish people at this time, the Sabbath started, it was Saturday was the Sabbath, and it still is if you go to Jerusalem, none of the shops are open on Saturday. But, the, but it starts Friday night at sunset is when the Sabbath starts. Friday night at sunset to Saturday night sunset. So Jesus is on the cross at 9 a.m. on Friday. And at 3 p.m., they start getting nervous. He's been on the cross for six hours, and they get nervous because they start worrying about, there are verses that say like someone is cursed if they're on a tree, if they're crucified, and if we're engaged in that, they don't want to defile themselves. So they need to make sure that all of the people are dead and off of the cross before sunset. And I want to tell you 
that these people who are nervous because they want to follow the Sabbath, these people have gone crazy. These people are mad because they have just killed the Son of God. The one who made the Sabbath is hanging on the cross. And they are worried about resting and not defiling themselves. And they're worried about resting in this concept that they have of the Sabbath as they try to speed the death of the Lord of the Sabbath on the cross. And John does this. You see how John, like, they were fighting over Jesus' clothes and on the cross, he's trying to clothe them with his righteousness. And they are just, they, they are seeing it and not seeing it. They are hearing what's happening and they're missing it by, by a mile. So they're worried about defiling themselves on the Sabbath. And it's actually the very body that they're worried about hanging on the cross that has cleansed them from forever being defiled if they rest in him. They're wanting to rest in the Sabbath. And the one who says, I will give you rest for your soul if you give your life to me. They're like, we got we to gotta clean this up because we have a holy day that's starting in a couple hours. They're, and, and I think a, a major question just for us to be challenged because it's so easy to read the Old Testament and be like, man, those people, they are just the worst uh, then we forget to look at ourselves in the mirror, and I'm not trying to just make us feel like we're the worst, but sometimes in, in, if we miss them, we miss us. Or sometimes when we get them, we can actually start getting us. And so I think a major question for each of us this morning is, is our rest in the right place? Is rest for our soul in the right place? Are we trying to keep some archaic rule that's not me calling the Sabbath archaic because it's, I don't believe it is. But are we trying to keep some rule when the God who created the rule is knocking on the door of our life? Are we trusting our works of religion or are we resting in the Lord of the Sabbath? One is a hamster wheel, the other is a person who came to give us true rest, rest for our souls Jesus has died for these purposes. And to make sure he is dead so that they can observe the Sabbath, verse 34 happens. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water, which there are, there are medical, um, some of you who are more into the medical field know that, that in times of like massive stress, your body can accumulate fluid as well, and so there are like medical things here. We won't talk about that too much, but when they pierced his side, blood and water came out. Then verse 35, he who saw it, John is speaking of himself here, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. John believed that this was such a crucial moment that he's like, I mean, as much as he can say, I swear, like, I found a notary public, I put my hand on the Bible, like, everything I can do to tell you this is really happening, this, I really saw this happen, not just so that he would be vindicated or something, but that we may believe. Verse 36, for these things took place 
that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So when we see the blood and the water come out from the side of Jesus throughout the history of the church, people have believed that this is actually pointing to the exodus of Israel. And if you remember what the exodus was, was for multiple hundreds of years, God's people were taken out of Israel, were, became slaves in Egypt, and they were actually, the archaeologists believe that they were actually the manpower that built the pyramids during those hundreds of years in the 1500 BC type time period. And so if you're going to be a slave, like that is a bad place to be a slave, like people who have that type of vision for work. And um, so it was terrible, and they were crying out for 400 years that they would be rescued. And God raised up Moses and rescued them. And one of the things with the blood is if you remember that you had to put blood over your home, over your doorposts, like the blood of a lamb over the doorposts of your home. And when the angel of death came through that region, it would pass over those who had put on the blood of the lamb. Then, as they come out of Egypt, so hopefully you made some of those connections, like, oh, wow, that kind of sounds like Jesus in many ways. And then, as, as they came out of Israel, and then they were, went through the Red Sea, and then they're in this place, and I've been able to spend a day in this area. I was with a group that he was like, we're just going to spend a whole day just sitting out in the middle of the wilderness, which is just, there's no trees, it's just desert and hot and sunny, no shade. And, uh, you know, I just endured it for like a few hours, and I was like, wow, that was terrible. I needed a giant bottle of water, you know, and, but just to get a feel for what it would be like to be there for a long time. Well, they started, like, w- being worried that they weren't going to have any water, um, and so there was a point that people became really desperate and were like, you know, God, we need water. We don't believe you've led us out here to die of thirst, and so he instructed Moses to strike a rock, and out of the side of the rock flowed just gushes of water that kept them alive and nourished them in a wilderness so they wouldn't die. And so, so most people like, are directing like, man, that seems like, like Jesus is the exodus. He's a greater exodus. He eclipsed the exodus. In the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus is the greater Moses. And, and here, this new exodus, having, us come, having him come to the rescue of our sins, Rescue us from death. Give us nourishment in this desert of our lives. John pleads with us to believe that what he is saying here is true, to believe his testimony is true, so that we would believe as well and find that nourishment as well and find that Passover as well. Then John quotes Zechariah 12.10. We're going to go a lot more into this this coming Friday, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Zechariah 12.10 right now, but this is where it says that, that we will look on him whom they have pierced. We'll look on him whom they have pierced. And I think this should take us also to John chapter 3. So John is assuming that we're tracking with him throughout his, his gospel. And if you remember, everybody for the most part, remembers John 3.16. If you believe in Jesus, you will not perish but have everlasting life. 
A lot of people don't remember John 3, 14 and 15. It's kind of like the people that get, like you can't see them because they're around a famous person, you know? But it's like John 3, 16 is super famous, but we should see 14 and 15. And if you remember what 14 and 15 and preceding that is talking about is how during the Exodus, there were snakes, venomous snakes, which probably gives the heebie-jeebies to some people just thinking about, you know, you've come through so much, and now there are venomous snakes that are seeking to bite you and kill you. And so as people were getting bit by these venomous snakes, they looked to God and realized this, God could have just kept all the snakes away. But a lot of times when he does one thing, he's doing a thousand things, and I think he was wanting to teach us a greater lesson knowing what's coming. And so what he did was he instructed Moses, take a serpent, a bronze, do this all in bronze, in bronze, make a serpent and put it on a cross or put it on a pole and then raise that pole up, up in the air. And whenever anybody is bitten by the snake and knows they have the venom inside of them to kill them, all that they have to do is look. Just look to the pole. And anyone who looks to the pole will be healed. Now, there are probably people who were like walking around and were being like, oh, wow, that's interesting, and didn't recognize they had the venom inside them, or maybe didn't think they had venom inside of them. But anyone who was like, oh my gosh, I have deadly venom, and God has made a way for my healing, I just look. I just look to the pole. And this is John 3, 14 and 15, to lay the groundwork of what he means for if anyone believes, God so loved the world he sent his only son that whoever looks, believes, will not, have, will not perish but have everlasting life. Because we have a greater, we actually do have a greater venom in our bloodstream than snake venom. We have sin venom inside of our bloodstream. And if anybody tells you like, oh no, you don't have sin, no, this is like some constructed Christianity thing to make you feel like a terrible person, uh, man, just you know, observe a kid, right? No one has to teach them how to sin. No one has to teach them. No one has to teach me how to sin. It's just in my blood. <laughs> I'm, it's in my blood. And, uh, and it's, it's something that leads to death, but leads and has formed the brokenness of our world, but also could lead to complete separation from God. So actually being far worse than just snake venom. And here, Zechariah 12.10 is tying this together, and John is tying this together, that they will look on him whom they have pierced. John saw it. John looked to Jesus and believed. Would you look to Jesus and believe? And this is a point not to miss. Seeing is believing. That's like a phrase we use. Seeing is believing. And that is, you could say, well, he should have made it more complicated. Just looking to him seems too easy. Well, we're reading about, it's easy for us. It wasn't easy for him. It's easy for a person to look at a bronze pole. God made a way. They knew they had no hope apart from God's way. They looked and they were healed. We can look and be healed. We can look on him who was pierced for our transgressions.
Then we're taken to verse 38. John, John keeps directing us into these very tying together concepts, but different things that we may believe. We're then taken to verse 38. Unexpected people emerge from the shadows. Look at this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away his body. Then verse 39, Nicodemus also. So all that we talked about in John 3 was a conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus over the cover of dark because Nicodemus was afraid to be seen publicly with Jesus. So Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. These two men were in the shadows in their relationship with Jesus. They are always hyper aware of what people around them think of their relationship with Jesus. They're always hyper aware of that. Um, Nicodemus has some of the clearest conversations with Jesus, but then doesn't seem to follow him. People can say like, man, if I had the conversation that Nicodemus had, I would follow him for sure. Well, Nicodemus had, had those conversations and thought more about himself, it seems, than he thought about Jesus. These men here, though, however, take a huge risk. So studying like crucifixion in the first century, the way that the Roman Empire kind of worked in their legal system and stuff, if you showed care for someone who had just been crucified, because they're crucified as a criminal, and if you show care for someone who's just been crucified, there are instances where that person who showed care is instantly crucified. It's like the purest guilt by association, 100%. I'm going to crucify you too because you like the guy that we just crucified. So, so let's just throw, all of you, throw the lot together. So for them to actually identify themselves as caring about Jesus, and then not only are they doing it publicly in Pilate's face, but they are also doing it in a personal sacrificial way. So you see there that Joseph of Arimathea, that the tomb was a new tomb that had been carved out of bedrock. It's hard to do today to carve a tomb out of bedrock with tool, modern tools. Um, without modern tools, it'd be a lot of work and a lot of expense to carve a tomb out. And it's very likely it was Joseph's tomb that he had paid greatly for himself that he now gives to Jesus. And then you see Nicodemus Nicodemus is the wise teacher of Israel, if you remember how he's described in John chapter 3. And here he's giving something that the wise men gave to Jesus. So he's giving myrrh when Jesus was just a baby. And they're risking their lives to honor Jesus' life. Then in verse 41, Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And I think this is poetic. Um, not mean it's not true. It's just a poetical reality that it was in a garden that this whole mess got started. 
this whole mess got started in a garden. Adam and Eve bought into Satan's lies. They thought that they'd be better off listening to Satan instead of God. Human rebellion against God started in that first garden. The venom of sin entered the bloodstream of all who would come after Adam, and it would take a new Adam, as the book of Hebrews tells us. And Jesus is laid in a garden after dying for the sins brought from the first garden and the first Adam. And a personal question for each of us is, uh, are you going to be on the sidelines? Is there professional risk for you to take a stand for Jesus at work? Is there risk for you and what that might mean for friendship groups to take a stand for Jesus, to be all in, to go public at school maybe, maybe even in your own family? Um, We have baptism in two Sundays. And man, if you've given your life to Jesus or you're giving your life to Jesus today, Baptism is one of the most powerful ways to go public. Be like, hey, I'm letting everybody here know that I am his. He has rescued me. He has bought me. He lives to intercede for me. I'm all his. And um, I don't think I would hopefully embarrass you, but before I came up here, BJ was like, man, if nobody signs up, I'll get baptized again. That was amazing. So... (laughs) There's theological reasons I would say, let's just do that once, you know. But at the same time, like, it is that, like, stake in the ground, powerful moment that is, uh, um, I've seen people, twice I've been a part of baptizing people, and when they came out of the water, people were watching, not even knowing why they were there that day, who just were like, this is all real, Jesus, you're mine, I'm yours. And twice I've seen that, that happen, the power of going public. Will each of us go public? Let's not stay in the shadows. Let's not just be interested intellectually in Jesus, interested in what he says, but no personal cost and without the risk of going public. This leads to someone who might know about Jesus, but very likely doesn't know him, doesn't know the man. And it's at that intersection of of Jesus' greatest suffering, Jesus' greatest brokenness, and our greatest brokenness, At the intersection of us bringing all that we are, good, bad, and ugly, and him coming with his suffering at that intersection of our greatest brokenness and his greatest brokenness is our greatest joy and his greatest joy. And and one of the, the powerful things that we do every week is we take communion. And what communion is, and, uh, you know, we don't want to put the cart before the horse in the sense of, like, but it's no surprise that, that what we do celebrate on Easter Sunday is Jesus is alive. This would all be so much more sad and boring and all that stuff if it was like, he died for us, we'll all be in heaven forever thinking about him. But he defeated death, he's alive and well, and because he's alive, we can be alive with him forever, and because he's alive, he, can, he communes with us. And that's one of the reasons we pray. You might be like, man, this church prays more during a service than I've ever been a part of a church praying during a service. It's because the, the crime of, of, of churches, and we saw this in Germany during World War II, the cr- crime of churches sometimes is asking Jesus to not be a part of a church anymore. Be like, hey, we got it from here. We're going to play at this church thing. We got our religions out, and uh, you just kind of don't mess with us anymore. We just like things the way that they are. He is a consuming fire. He is alive and well. He is building the church, and he is present. 
And when we come in communion, we are truly communing with him. And he invented this as a tangible way that we get to feel him and smell him and be, be close to him. He's closer than a brother, and he's given us this in our gatherings to commune with him in a special way that we do every week. And uh, there are warnings in Scripture to not flock to the table too quickly without just looking to him, opening yourself up to like, Lord, what, what, what do I need to know? Like, what are we doing here? What do I need to know from you? Like, open yourself up to him. Let him, let him do work on your soul but then come to the table if you've given your life to Jesus. Um, you'll be served uh, bread, people with gloves on. I think it's grace and McKenna, is that it? Okay, feel free to come up. Um, we'll be, they'll be with gloves on, tearing off some bread and handing it to you and saying this is the body of Jesus given for you. And then wine or juice, obey your conscience there. And then the way that we do it is uh, we'll just come down the aisle, take the elements and go ahead and hold on to them. And we'll go back to your seats and remain standing, and then we'll take it together as family, and I'll lead us that way. If you came in here and you, have, you say, you know, I don't know where I'm at with Jesus, um, I would encourage you, give your life to him. Then you'll know where you're at with him. Uh, so anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone with the venom of sin in them that looks to him, you're healed. And uh, do that. We had a person do that last week. Uh, then come and Enjoy communion for the first time. And if you're like, I just don't know if I'm there yet, man, you are welcome to be here as long as you want to be here. And we'll keep talking, we'll keep hearing, um, keep looking to him. And this might be a good chance just to pray and just say, Lord, if this is real, show me. He's not about hiding in the dark. He's about laying a well-lit path in front of us to follow him. So let's spend some time with him, then let's come. Come to the table.